Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Welcome to Naked Oceans. This month we're diving into the sensory world of marine animals to find out how they hear, see, touch and smell their way through the oceans. We'll find out why New England lobsters head for home when they have a whole ocean to choose from. We'll follow drifting reef larvae and we'll catch up with scientists who are using underwater robots to eavesdrop on the songs of North Atlantic right whales, even in the middle of a raging storm. Hello, I'm Helen Scales and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello, We'll also be finding out how where a fish lives in the ocean can affect how it sees the world. And on Critter of the Month, we have a legendary marine expert with a fantastic story to tell. The airline gave me an extra seat for the shark. (laughs) Most people didn't know he was such a tiny little thing. He was less than two feet long. Stay tuned to find out who that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans, on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. Right, let's kick things off with some news. Sarah, what have you got for us this month? Well, I've got a great study that's been published online in the journal Systematic Biology that has solved quite a tricky taxonomic problem involving echinoderms. Now, echinoderms include creatures like sea urchins, starfish, sea cucumbers and sea lilies, But how the different classes of living echinoderms are related to each other has caused problems over the years, with one particular deep-sea specimen giving taxonomists a proper headache. It's called xyloplax, and it's a tiny disc-shaped animal about four millimetres across, found in the deep sea around New Zealand and the Bahamas. It didn't fit with any of the body plans of the other groups, so it was placed in a separate echinoderm class of its own, a sixth class, alongside Asteroidea, which are the starfish, Ophiuroidea, including the brittle stars, Holothuroidea, which are the sea cucumbers, Echinoidea, which are the sea urchins, and Crinoidea, which are the sea lilies. But now a group led by Daniel Janies from The Ohio State University have used molecular sequencing, developmental data and supercomputers from The Ohio Supercomputer Center to show that actually xyloplax belongs within the asteroidia with the starfish. They examined specimens caught by Janet Voigt, another of the paper's authors, to show that xyloplax broods its young in a special chamber, just like some other groups of starfish, and to study its development. And they were able to extract genes from the specimens to compare with 86 other echinoderm species and non-echinoderm outgroups to create a phylogenetic tree, which places the xyloplax with the starfish. But why doesn't it look like a starfish? Well, this is the really cool bit of the study. Janies and his colleagues suggest that xyloplax's circular appearance is due to a process called progenesis, where individuals reach sexual maturity whilst retaining their juvenile body plan. 
Progenesis, along with another process called neoteny, are examples of pedomorphosis, where adults of a species either retain features of juveniles, which is neoteny, an example of this would be the external gills on an axolotl, or they completely retain the juvenile body plan whilst being sexually mature, which is progenesis, as is the case here. Now, there aren't that many robust examples of pedomorphosis in nature, but it has been suggested as a possible route that vertebrates could have evolved by and in human evolution too. So having more examples of it is great and will hopefully allow us to understand it better in the future. That is really awesome, really interesting stuff. And I love that this little guy is tiny, 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 four millimetres long. And xyloplex is a great name too. But um, going from one of the obviously tiniest creatures in the ocean, I now have a fantastic story about the biggest fish um, in the oceans um, with the news that scientists in Mexico have discovered the largest mass gathering of whale sharks in the world. Well, these gentle giants can grow up to around 12 metres or 40 feet in length. Um, And that means that just spotting one of them as they cruise through the oceans is a completely brilliant, unforgettable experience, and I can definitely vouch for that. Um, So imagine what it must be like spotting a gang of more than 400 whale sharks in one place at the same time. Yes, wow. Um, Well, that's exactly what a team of researchers from Mexico and the US did back in the summer of 2006, when a huge aggregation site, which they've named Afuera, was spotted from a plane flying off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in the Caribbean Sea. Um, And since then, they've been back each year to carry out studies from the air and in the water to try and figure out what's going on. And in 2009, they spotted the largest aggregation that's ever been seen of 420 sharks in an area covering just 12 square kilometres. So I guess the big question is, why do whale sharks do this? What are they up to? Well, when any group of animals gather together en masse like this, there's really only two possible explanations, sex and food. Um, And in the case of whale sharks at Afuera and elsewhere around the world, actually, where there are other aggregations, um, it is about the latter. It's about food. Um, I've actually seen whale sharks in Ningaloo Reef, and we talked um, to Brad Norman a couple of episodes ago about his work out there. And, um, and the whale sharks there gather to feed on coral reefs um, after they undergo the mass spawning. Um, and at another aggregation site in Belize, whale sharks um, are after the eggs of dog snappers after they spawn in aggregations. Well, at Afuera, the research team went out and they sieved the sea to see what was there and what it might be that the whale sharks are eating. And they found that it was awash with fish eggs. And they did DNA barcoding. Hooray for DNA barcoding. Isn't it brilliant? Um, And they could figure out using that that it was a type of tuna called the little tunny. Um, And these eggs come packed with fat. It makes them superb, perfect whale whale shark food. And it's thought that the reasons the tuna show up um, to spawn in this spot is that there's a lot of upwelling along the coast and that injects this pulse of nutrients into the ecosystem. Um, There's another smaller aggregation close to Afuera that we've known about for a couple of years and that's recently been protected by the Mexican government Um, and that's already drawing flocks of tourists who quite understandably are really keen to swim alongside these enormous sharks. Um, But the researchers are a little bit worried about finding this new site um, and they really think, you know, it it could be that boat traffic and, and too many people are going to eventually cause problems and so they're calling for really swift action to get these animals and this enormous, extraordinary extraordinary natural event protected and so hopefully it'll be there for generations to come and you can read all about the amazing discovery of the afuera whale shark aggregation um, because the paper's open access it's in the journal plus one and we've put some links up on the web page but do have a look because there's a brilliant picture taken from the air of these whale sharks and it just looks like like they're ants or something it's insane there's so many of them it's fantastic 
Well, I guess, yeah, that's kind of worrying about tourists going and seeing. I mean, obviously, it's such a spectacle. You want to see it so much, but you really do have to put measures in place to make sure that people coming to see these amazing creatures aren't actually causing many problems. Well, you can find out more about this month's aquatic news stories and many more at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Cast Perry and me, Helen Scales. Well, this month we're looking into the sensory world of marine animals. Obviously, it's a very different world down there compared to our dry lives on land. But just how do ocean creatures find their way around? And why is it important for us to understand that for our efforts to protect it all? Well, to get things going, we chatted to Yella Artema from Boston University to find out how and why he studies the ways marine animals build a picture of the world around them. My whole career actually is based on this intrigue with what other animals can see in the world. I decided that probably the most interesting place was underwater because it is so unfamiliar to us. So if we want to enrich our understanding of sensing the information that is actually floating around in the environment, it pays off to go to animals that live underwater and ask them some questions. So I joined a team of Australians in the Great Barrier Reef who were very much fish ecologists. They have until then pretty much considered larval fishes to be floating passive particles who could not possibly swim against ocean currents and therefore were at the mercy of ocean currents. I, however, came from a very different point of view. I look at little fishes and I look at their brain and I see highly sophisticated small versions of larger animals. And so I thought it cannot be. You cannot develop a big brain and all these senses for nothing and just float around willy-nilly in the ocean. So my intent was to go and mine the knowledge we had gathered from other animals to see if larval reef fishes actually can influence their trajectory in the wild big ocean. The answer, in short, is yes. We have discovered, for instance, that they use their olfactory sense to discriminate between the odors of different reefs, even though the reefs are very close together. That means that they probably imprint on that at birth, because at birth, that's basically the only information they can gather. They are sitting there, often brooded in some species. And so the local environment in which they hatch is the first experience they have with the world. And that knowledge can help them later on if they want to come back to the reef, because many of these reef fishes and also invertebrates are dispersing as larvae out in the open ocean and have to come back somewhere to a reef. So what better knowledge than where you were born? You know for sure that that's a reef. And if it doesn't work, go to another reef that is similar. We also have just discovered that they have a sun compass. So just like birds and insects, they can use the sun for general orientation. Other people have worked on sound and have discovered that they orient towards sound. And we expect that they will have a magnetic sense as well. So here are our little floating particles who have real knowledge of the ocean and can influence their return to the reef and thereby the structure of the population as a whole. And that has conservation implications. Well, we'll come back to those conservation implications in a moment. But first, as well as reef fish, another marine animal that Yellow studies is the lobster. Along the New England coast where he works, there are some lobster fisheries that are doing fine. And there are some that are in serious trouble, with lobster numbers dwindling. Well, Yella and his team set out to investigate what's going on, in, in particular in a place called Narragansett Bay, which is on the north side of Rhode Island. And they made a really interesting discovery, which got them thinking about what it is that makes tiny lobster larvae head for home when they have the whole big wide ocean to choose from. 
what we discovered is that lobsters are different by their morphology. Lobstermen have always said that. They say, I know where this lobster comes from. We know this lobster is different from that lobster. So our surprising discovery was that within Narragansett Bay and only 30 kilometers distance, we find two populations that are different. So we look carefully at the fine structure of how they're built, how long this leg is, how wide this leg is, the tail fan, anything we can measure. And based on that, we compare these populations and we see they're different. Then we take a little piece of tissue and we find that genetically they're different. And finally, we ask females from one and the other population to see where they would like to spend more time with the side of the tank where a male from their own population or from the other population is. And it turns out that significantly, by a small margin, they prefer their own males. Now, these three things together could indicate that in fact we are dealing with a locally recruiting population because in order to get this kind of difference, they have to repeatedly go back to the same place and reproduce in the same place. That is hard to believe when you know how the lobster lives. Lobsters, like the reef fishes, disperse in the ocean so they can travel a long distance in the three weeks that they are at sea. So how come they can still maintain a local population at 30 kilometers when they can move 100 kilometers? In addition, once they settle... They are mobile adults, not like reef fishes who are sit where they are, but lobsters have been documented with tagging studies to be able to travel over hundreds of miles. How are you going about answering that big question mark of how the lobsters don't end up just all being mixed up in one big population? What sort of studies are you doing? There are two directions of answer here. One is we want to first establish that what I just told you is really significant. Uh, I still don't want to walk on that thin ice because the implications are so significant that I haven't even published it yet. The proposal that is right now in the hopper is to go to a place where we saw this structure, Narragansett Bay, and now sample five sites in Narragansett Bay and five sites outside Narragansett Bay and sample it three times per year for two years. So from that study, two years from now, hopefully if it gets funded, we would know how persistent and how different and at what scale these populations, subpopulations are different. So that's the first step. In the meantime, we're working because obviously that is really my interest is how do they do it? So there are a number of ideas about this. Once again, it comes to larval imprinting that these animals may have an olfactory notion of where they were born and may have a preference for ocean water that smells like home. In the beginning of their larval stages, they cannot swim very much. But in their second part of their larval stage, they look like little lobsters and can swim incredibly well, faster than humans, even Olympic champions. And so they can swim for days on end without feeding, and so they can cover huge distances. If on top of that it turns out that they have navigational capabilities, let's say with a magnetic or a sun compass, they could steer in an innate direction. So if they're born automatically with the sense that they should be swimming northwest, the way to go to the continent, right, if you're at sea, then that would already help them settle on the coast. The olfactory capabilities is another thing. We have started that, and we know that they have various preferences, for instance, for larval lobsters themselves, so they can settle with each other. But we don't know yet if they prefer their local stock versus other stocks. If we understand more about how 
local populations are, are seeding themselves, how they're working, that we can't necessarily consider the lobsters as being this one interconnected population. Maybe it's good news if they were local populations, because then a local fishery could really look after its own piece of sea and see benefits from what they do. I think you hit right on it. It's, uh, it is probably very good to have local management. Let's go back to the reef, because in the reefs you have these very distinct entities that are called reefs. Reef fishes can only live on reefs, and in between there is an ocean desert where they can only live as plankton in their early larval life. So if you have a reef that you set aside as a management sanctuary, and you are assuming that these animals will automatically seed all the nearby reefs, then you can expose the other reefs to fisheries and say, well, it's okay because we have one reef that supplies all the larvae for everybody else. And this was one notion that people started with. If it now turns out that most of these larvae are going back to their home reef and not go to the other reefs, except occasionally with a storm, then the recovery of the plundered reefs will take much, much longer. I'm not saying it will not happen, but it doesn't happen next year. It might happen in 10 or 30 years. So that has enormous management implications. If you now jump to the lobster territory, which is not built of separate reefs, but it is a continuous coast, it seems less likely that lobsters can do this same population structure. However, if we actually manage to establish that they do, regardless how they do it, we can use the same management implications for the reef as we can do for the lobsters. That was Yella Artema from Boston University introducing us to the sensory world of fish and lobsters. And it's going to be really interesting to see how those studies pan out um, for the New England lobsters and also to see if something similar is going on in lobsters elsewhere around the world. Um, because there's no doubt people do love to eat lobsters. I can't say I'm much of a fan, but Sarah, Sarah do you like lobsters? God, I love, love lobster. I, I feel terrible given that I should really be sort of, no, no, I mustn't, I mustn't eat anything that could potentially be endangered. But I love lobster. It's delicious. It's sweet. Oh, I can't believe you don't like it. <laughs> It's not that I don't like it, I just haven't really had much of a chance. And actually, it's not always bad. I think there are some well-managed fisheries where, where it's OK. And it's, and it's about, you know, we, sh we should be putting our, uh, our purchasing power in, into action and buying lobsters that are well looked after and that they're doing OK. So I think it's all right. I think, I think we'll let you have some lobsters, as long as they've been fished properly. Well, moving on from smelling to seeing now, the best way to understand how different fish see the world is to look at the genes that code for the visual pigments in their eyes. So I spoke to Shozo Yokoyama from Emory University to find out more about sight in the seas, starting off with a bit of an elementary biology lesson on the light-sensing part of the eye, the retina. When you look at the retina, we have uh, one type of uh, pigment which is expressed in rods, which we call them rhodopsin, and there are the four kinds of pigments are uh, expressing cones. And, for example, one type of cone pigment is detect either UV or violet. Another type of pigment detect, say, red or green. That's other extremes. Then the other two types have absorb light between uh, blue and green. So essentially four kinds of uh, cone pigments we have. Uh, we means fish has. And are all four of those pigments seen in all fish or are some of them lost within some groups? Oh, yes. Yeah, so that compositions can be very different depending on... Uh, where you live. When we look at living species of fish, when we compare the, the visual pigments of different groups today, what sort of differences do we see between them? 
I think different groups of fish do not make much difference, but uh, we can see more similarities among them. But the biggest difference comes from uh, where they live, in this case, the depth of the ocean, say. Then that affects them a lot. So if we compare something like a shallow water, so a fish that perhaps lives on a coral reef, compared to something that lives a, a very long way down where there's not a lot of light at all? As you go down the ocean, go deeper, then the amount of light will be reduced a lot, and the specific light can go down, can penetrate. That's because water absorbs red colors and UV colors. So only between of them can go down. So depending on where they live, their vision can be affected significantly. I'll give you one example. That is a coelacanth, which live like uh, 200 meters under the ocean. They live close to the uh, Comoros archipelago in the Indian Ocean, and there they get a specific, very special light. So coelacanths kept only rod pigments, rhodopsins in rod, and one kind of pigment in cones. That's all. And other genes have been eliminated. We can study that at the molecular level and the function levels. So we know what they did to live in that environment. But if you come up in the shallow waters, fish can see practically everywhere from UV to far red. So whereas this example, coelacans can detect only very narrow strip, strip of light around 480 nanometer. So is it a case that with something like a coelacanth, because they live at a a depth of the ocean where only a certain amount of the light spectrum gets through to them, there's no point in having visual pigments that would allow them to see sort of the red end of the spectrum or the UV end? Yes, that's the way it works. That's Actually, they did that very perfectly. So the coelacanth's ancestor, paleontological data says they used to live near the shallow water. Then maybe 200 million years or so ago, they went down, start going down to 200 meter. Their ancestor could see all sorts of light from UV to red, but the today's coelacanths can see only around 480 nanometer. That's around blue. And at the same time, what they did was that they eliminated the gene which detect UV and red. So their gene structure of the visual pigment is very, very uh, simple. And if we look even deeper, so right down into the deep, deep sea, I suppose a lot of the fish species that live down there don't have any need for cones that will see red light because red light attenuates so much in water that there basically isn't any left down there, so they have no need to see it. But there are some species that produce their own red light to be able to see sort of prey species, do we see a specialization of cones in those species to be able to see red light? Actually, that's what we like to know. There's one fish called a loose jaw, which creates two kinds of light. Many are bioluminescences produce 480, but this particular fish produce both 480 and around 700 nanometer. That's red, right? And the genetics of this one uh, we really want to clone these genes, which we are doing it, but uh, our function has not been determined yet from a molecular genetics point of view. So that's why I cannot tell you too much about it. So I guess it's the case of if you produce the light, you want to make sure that you can see it. 
Right. I think that's what they would do. Of course, another purpose for, of the bioluminescence is for the camouflage, right? So if you go down ocean, look up, then sky is kind of light, so fish want to make their belly whiter. So that's the reason they use bioluminescence. But some of the like red, as you mentioned, that has to be used for the hunting or communications, then they have to see. So to establish it, we have to really clone the genes that we are not there yet. That was Shozo Yokoyama from Emory University in Atlanta. And it seems like there's still a fair bit of uncertainty over how exactly the genes for visual pigments have shifted in different species. And especially the interesting case of the stoplight loose jaw, which of course we heard about in our Critters of Christmas episode. Definitely an area to keep an eye on. Excuse the pun. Making waves about the underwater world. This is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Sarah Castor-Perry and Helen Scales, and this month we're diving into the sensory world of the oceans. Coming up in a moment, we have a brilliant story about a shark on a plane in Critter of the Month. But first, we all know that whales and other cetaceans communicate with each other using sound, and some of them use echolocation to see with sound as well. And scientists have been working out ways of using those sounds to help study animals that are otherwise difficult to track down. But they don't just stick their heads in the water and listen out for a passing whale. They send out the latest generation of underwater robots to do it for them. Here's Mark Baumgartner from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in the States. Well, one of the reasons we wanted to look into uh, autonomous vehicles, or you can think of them as robots, to go to sea to do work for us is that it's very difficult to access marine mammals often. It's expensive to go out on ships, and there's lots of times where we can't actually observe marine mammals. So, for instance, at night during uh, difficult weather, and uh, when animals go far offshore, becomes difficult to to get ships out to access them. Uh, A friend of mine who works here at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in the Physical Oceanography Department, he uh, has built a career on using these autonomous underwater vehicles for his physical oceanographic research. And so we got together with the idea of uh, equipping these vehicles with Uh, passive acoustic recorders. So not only can they be collecting a lot of oceanographic information, but they can be listening for marine mammals as well. And so in 2005, we developed a a, um, digital acoustic recorder, and we put it on a glider and tried it for five days out off the coast of Massachusetts here. We didn't realize we were going to have such a spectacular demonstration of this technology Uh, When we put these things in the water, uh, a nor'easter, which is a powerful storm here on the east coast of the U.S., blew through the area when the gliders were in the water. We were actually at sea at the time trying to do research on North Atlantic right whales, and we actually had to leave the area and come home. The storm was so intense. There were gale force winds. Seas were up, I think, over 15 feet. These are conditions that are just not possible for us to work. But the gliders, no problem at all. So they sort of proved why we wanted to use them right off the bat. And they did a great job. They, uh, they stayed at sea, they collected a lot of information, and the recordings were just wonderful that we got back. What are these AUVs, these autonomous underwater vehicles or ocean gliders, what do they look like and, and how do you control them? 
So the ocean gliders, they have long endurance because there's no motors associated with them. So the way they work is they go up and down in the water column using what's called a buoyancy pump. So they just suck in some seawater to become heavier than the surrounding water, and they sink. And when they get to the bottom of their dive, they spit that water back out, and they become buoyant, and they float. They have little stubby wings uh, attached so that when they're going up and down, those wings provide a little lift, exactly the way an airplane glider works. The gliders themselves are sort of uh, four feet long, maybe a, a less than a foot in diameter, and so they're not very big. We paint them bright yellow so that we can see them. The way we operate them is they go to sea, and we usually give them something to do. So go to point A, please, or stay in this one location. And so they'll dive regularly to the bottom or to some specified depth, and they'll come back up to the surface. And every once in a while when they come to the surface, they sort of stick their butt out of the water, and they have a GPS, a global positioning system receiver on board, so they know where they are. And they also have a satellite phone, so they can phone home uh, and tell us where they are and what they've been doing, what they've measured. We can see in real time what the water is like. At that point, you can communicate with the glider. It's a two-way communication. You can say, okay, you've arrived at point A. Please now go to point B. And so you can sort of drive them, but you're not sitting in the driver's seat necessarily. You're just telling the vehicle what to do, and it works out which direction it needs to go, how fast it needs to go. Fantastic. And you said that a couple of years ago you've tried one out, and it seemed to work all the way through this great big storm, and that was wonderful for a few days. Yeah. Have you now started using them for a longer time? And, yes. and, and what sort of things are, are you finding out? So we were involved in a pilot project to take gliders to an area that's, that's fairly inaccessible to us on ships. In the Gulf of Maine, here off the coast of the northeast United States, there have been aerial surveys. They've been surveying the Gulf of Maine for many years, and they found this pocket of right whales in the middle of the Gulf of Maine that seemed to go there every single year, kind of late fall, early winter. That's a very difficult time for us to operate on ships because that's getting into the beginning of the stormy season. And so you could maybe stay out a day or two before seas get really rough and you have to come home. So we were thinking, how can we go up there and figure out what is it about this habitat that's so important to the right whales? And to do that, we typically take a ship and we go there and we take all kinds of measurements about uh, what the ocean conditions are like, what the food for the whales is like there, how much food is there, where is the food distributed. All of those things are impossible to observe from a plane. So we sent one glider and two other autonomous underwater vehicles called profiling floats, which are very much like gliders, only they don't fly. They just go up and down in the water column. And they stayed out there for a month. And so they were able to go to the area where the whales were and collect a lot of information about the environment that the whales had gone to exploit. We had acoustic recorders on all of those vehicles so we could tell where the animals were and where they weren't. And so, again, it was a good demonstration of the capabilities. They could stay there for a month, and the weather, the siding conditions didn't matter. It could be foggy, it could be night, they can still do their work. What plans do you have next for these, these ocean dives? Do you have things in the pipeline that you're going to be working on? We're working on a, a, a system now where there can be, not only are you recording the information on the glider, but you're also uh, you're running software to detect marine mammal sounds and to classify them to say, ooh, that's a right whale sound, or oh, that's a humpback whale sound. Collect that information on board the glider, and then using satellite communication, basically phone that information home. So we could potentially have these vehicles out in the ocean basically telling us what they're hearing almost in real time. So you could say to the glider, come to the surface every 
two or three hours and tell me what you heard. As scientists, we would like that information because we could send the gliders out to sort of do surveys for us and find out where the animals are. And then we can just go to those areas with planes or ships and study the animals, saving us an enormous amount of time. For management purposes, uh, there's a lot of interest in this to mitigate chronic problem interactions between people and whales. Right whales, for instance, are really prone to getting hit by ships and entangled in fishing gear. And so if you have a lot of these vehicles out doing these surveys for you, you can cover a broad area for a long period of time to tell you where the animals are. And then you can build in safety features by saying, well, we're not going to deploy fishing gear in this particular area because we know there are a lot of right whales there. Or over time, if you decided, well, this particular area is really seems to be important to right whales, and this happens to be right where shipping lanes are, maybe we should move the shipping lanes. And that actually has happened. Uh, shipping lanes that went directly through a right whale habitat in the Bay of Fundy up in Canada, and those shipping lanes eventually were moved. So it's just another surveillance technology that we can use to find out where the whales are so that we can better manage our activities around the whales. Mark Baumgartner there from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution telling us how he uses ocean gliders to listen out for whales, even in the middle of an enormous storm. Well, that's nearly the end of this episode of Naked Oceans. But first, it's that time in the show when we ask a marine expert to tell us if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. And Helen, you were in Florida a while back. And while you were there, you rubbed shoulders with a rather famous ichthyologist, Jeannie Clark. What was it like meeting her? Oh, she was just brilliant. She was absolutely wonderful. Such a lovely lady. And it was just a huge privilege to meet her and a great inspiration. She's been studying sharks and all sorts of other fish for more than 60 years. And she's made loads of great discoveries, including lots of stuff about their ability to sense the world around them. Um, And she's still busy doing research today. She spends loads of her time studying a a weird creature called the convict fish. Um, And she told me about how she's recently discovered a new species of shark that swells up like a puffer fish. Um, So I just couldn't resist asking her to choose an animal for our Critter of the Month Hall of Fame. I never thought of being a, a marine animal. <laughs> well, I guess the other question is, which is your favorite? Yeah, that's tough too, because I have so many favorites. Um, I suppose the lemon shark is my favorite shark because we got to know individuals and train them to press a target and ring a bell for their food. And that was uh, that opened up a whole new field and and interest. We had nurse sharks very commonly here. The big nurse sharks didn't seem to catch on at all to the target, but that's because they're almost blind, so they can't choose the correct target, however we put it in the water. But the lemon sharks have keen eyesight. But we later found out that nurse shark babies have keen eyesight, and they lose it as they get older, and they feel their environment with their barbels and so I remember taking a baby nurse shark to the crown prince, who is now the emperor, and we struck up a good friendship with with a trained baby nurse shark that never made a mistake. The airlines gave me a, an extra seat for the shark. <laughs> Most people didn't know. He was such a tiny little thing. He was less than two feet long. But he never made a mistake. And uh, my assistant at that time, a high school kid, of Freddie Aronson. Freddie said, uh, when I said, well, I have to take a present to the emperor, but they have everything, you know, and so he says, well, why don't you take our trained shark? Nobody else in the world has a 
a shark that never makes a mistake. And so I took that. That was the wonderful Jeannie Clark, also known as the Shark Lady, telling Helen about the time she took a trained baby nurse shark as a gift for the Emperor of Japan. Crazy. And Jeannie celebrates her 89th birthday this month, so I'm sure you'll all join us in wishing her a very happy birthday. You can find out more about Jeannie's sharks and lots more marine critters at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, that's it for Naked Oceans this month. A huge thank you to Yella Artemer, Mark Baumgartner, Shoza Yokoyama and Jeannie Clark. Join us next time for the final episode of the current series of Naked Oceans when we'll be plunging into the depths and exploring some of the most mysterious deep parts of the ocean. Well, you can find details of this show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. As always, thanks for listening and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.